we have the mercy of God. That means that at times where we get discouraged and we don't want to go on or the world is tempting us just to, just to do something different and to move away from continuing in the faith in the way that we're, we're doing that. He's saying, well, we have the mercy of God. In other words, God will meet us at every place in ministry that we feel like quitting. We feel like backing off. God will meet us. His mercy is sufficient for us. And that's actually the, the big reward of us continuing to be faithful is that we discover the mercy of God in a way that we would never discover that if we don't continue on in the things of the Lord. So he said we do it as we receive mercy. So he makes a statement, just a statement of fact, we don't lose heart. And that, that, that word or that phrase means we don't quit. We get discouraged, but we don't let the discouragement overwhelm us and dictate to us what we should do. It's a power pack first verse, isn't it? He says in verse 2, but we have renounced the hidden things of shame, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by uh, by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. You know what he's saying there? We don't use gimmicks. We don't use techniques as we minister the things of God. There's these hidden things of shame. And Paul was being criticized for being too simple or just teaching the word of God or not being exciting enough. And yet the whole time as they're criticizing Paul, his ministry is flourishing. His ministry is a ministry of people's lives being given to Jesus Christ and churches being established all across Asia Minor and into Europe. And his ministry is flourishing and he's being criticized that he's not doing it right. And part of the group of people that are being affected by those criticizing him are the very ones in whom are now saved because of his ministry. And that that shows you the fickle nature of man. Always wanting a new thing, a fresh thing, an exciting thing. These are all things that are appealing to the flesh. And I'm not saying that we should look for boring things. We should look for uninspiring or unmoving things. But what we need to be able to to distinguish is, and this is hard in our culture, is It's not the responsibility, nor should it be, of the church to entertain us. That's not the job of the church. The job of the church is to equip us, is to feed our souls by the word of God, is 
to bring us into the knowledge of God and help us grow in the things of God. That, when we get that mixed up and we think, well, the church should be entertaining me. And if I give my tithe, then they better make it like uh, better than a show that I would give money to and go to. They better make it good. That's not the church's responsibility. And really, I don't think the church is the best at entertaining. When the church is entertaining, it's just copying the world. The church is really good at feeding souls. The church is really good at equipping souls, of bringing people into a relationship with Christ and helping them grow in the things of Christ. That's what the church should be doing. And so, so Paul is saying that my ministry wasn't a manipulative ministry, a bait and switch, a marketing campaign to sort of get everybody just to come in and make them feel like, well, it's not really church. You can go here and it's not really church, but it's a church, but it's not really church. But there's something in human nature that, that always wants to feel like they're part of a new thing. Be very careful of those type of things. Make sure you're in a church that's equipping you for the work of the ministry, that's feeding you the word of God, that's praying and that's fellowshipping in the things of God. So he says in verse 3, but even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. Now that's a pretty heavy statement so if one hears the gospel the good news of jesus christ dying for our sins that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life it says that they they, they're already perishing so they're they're already in the act of dying eternally being separated from god and it says that there's like a, a veil that's over their eyes. So when, when one rejects the gospel or pushes back, or you may be sharing Christ with somebody and, and you feel like you're bumping into a wall, like you're trying to explain something that they just don't get, well, understand and have some sympathy that there's a veil, they, they can't see it. Pray, continue to show them and teach them and explain to them the things of God, but it's not until that veil is lifted, but when that veil is lifted, a lot of you here have had that veil lifted and you see, I was blind, but now I see. It's amazing because now you see the things of God. You uh, hear his voice. You have an understanding that you've been set free. There's something amazing that happens when that veil lifts. But how does that veil lift? He tells us. He says, when the veil is there, we can't see. It's because people's minds, the God of this age, has blinded. How, how come they're blinded? Because they do not believe. You see that? 
Belief is what brings the veil up and allows us to see. So some people will say, well, seeing is what? Believing. But here it says, believing is what? Seeing. Believing is seeing. So he says that those who don't believe, they're blinded. And the reason they're blinded is because they're believing the lies of the enemy, the God of this age. That's Satan, the spiritual lies that Satan sows, that they're believing those lies. And that's what would cause a person not to see the things of God. But when a person believes, and here it, it also suggests that a person won't believe, if they're not believing, they are perishing, but they have also bought the lies of the enemy. So they're believing the lies of the enemy instead of believing the truth. And because they believe the lies of the enemy, now they're blinded to see the truth. But if they wanted to see the truth, then they would believe the things of God, which, by the way, we point out quite a bit that there is nothing more believable than the things of God on earth. It's more of a heart thing and a moral thing. People love darkness rather than light. But when a person believes, then they've defeated the lies of the enemy. Their eyes have been opened to the truth that sets them free. And it says that the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is, the, is in the image of God, would shine on them. What a great description of someone whose eyes have been opened to the truth, it says the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who's in the image of God, is shining on them. Verse 5, for we do not preach ourselves. See his argument there? Paul is saying when we came to preach, we preach Christ. We didn't come to boost ourselves or to make you followers of a person or a human movement or an earthly movement. When we can, we preach Christ and not ourselves. He's saying that. And it's, it's interesting because you see a lot of that going on, a lot of self-preaching, a lot of elevation of man and focus on the instrument instead of the God who's using that instrument. So we don't, do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord and ourselves your bondservants for Jesus' sake. So to correctly understand ministry is to be a bondservant of Jesus Christ. Verse 6, he says, For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels. What treasure? The treasure of the gospel. We have this treasure. We have had entrusted to us the words of eternal life. And those words are given to us, those who believe, those who are believers, 
And we possess those words in ourself, which he compares us, ourselves, as earthen vessels or like a, a pot of clay. So why would we boast and promote ourselves when all we are are jars of clay? Nothing to draw attention to. Jars of clay are used as vessels for things. They're instruments, but that's all. And when we get that turned around and twisted, and we think we're something special and we're the star. This is what he's talking against. But don't discount the power of God that you have in you. The treasure, he calls it. And he gives us the, the reason for that treasure that we have in, in these earthen vessels. He says that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. Speaking about us, he narrows it down to his particular life in the ministry. He says, in, in my ministry, we are hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always caring about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus also may be manifest in our body. What he's speaking about is our life lived for Christ will bring about difficulties and hardships, but those difficulties and hardships will not overcome or overwhelm us, but they will bring about and bring out of us the glory of God. He's sharing with us the way of a Christian, the way of a follower of Jesus, things that are normal in the life of a believer. And he describes those. And he, he's saying because the believer has the dying of Jesus or the crucifixion of Jesus, and that is what brought a believer into faith and into the kingdom of God. It was the crucifixion of Jesus Christ then he's saying, then for us, as followers of, of Christ, we too, we don't live for ourselves and our will. We live for God and His will. And as we do that, we go through various difficulties and, and hardships because of our faith in Christ. But those things never become bigger than the grace and the mercy that God gives us to get through those things. And that's the way of a believer. Do you see why from reading this, do you see why Satan distorts so much, especially in our culture, what it means to be a Christian? The, the sort of thing 
to where if you become a Christian, your life will be great and easy and successful and everybody will love you and you'll have a lot of things, a lot of your possessions will grow and things like that. And we just don't see that in the Bible. And again, that doesn't mean that God won't necessarily bless you with material things and comfort in life. But that's not what we live for. That's the point. That's not what we live for. And when we live for Christ, and that really should be all that we concern ourselves with. Because as we live for Christ, then he'll orchestrate our life. In Ephesians 2.10, it says that he has good works prepared beforehand for us that we should walk in them. So in other words, as we're believers, God has a plan and a path for us to walk on. And as we simply seek him and seek his will and walk on that plan, that, that path that he already laid out, then there are different various things that are going to happen. The key is just to be faithful and to see persecution, trials, and things like that as normal, not as ab abnormal. And remember the argument here. Paul is arguing against those who would say everything he's saying here is wrong. And actually they would belittle him and say he, he's not a good minister because look at all the struggles that he has. But that's the same way many people think in our day and age. They may drive by a little country church somewhere and say, oh, that poor little church. Look how small that poor little church is. And that's not, that's not what the Bible says. And again, there's nothing wrong with having a big church. If God adds the increase, if it's God who does that. The point is, those things aren't our department. Our department is to be faithful to God and allow Him to do what He wants with it. We're not to strive to make things happen. We are to serve God as bondservants and follow Him and let Him do what He wants to do with that. That's what He's getting at. In verse 11, He says, So we are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus may also be manifest in our mortal flesh. So that's how it happens. When we die to ourself and live for God's purposes, His will is what we live for, not our own will. Then what happens is God is manifest in our lives. He says, so then death is always working in us, but Life in you. Why is he saying that? Because he's saying, as I have sacrificed for the Corinthian church, you have come alive because of the sacrifices and my self-denial. You have grown as people in the Lord. So there's spiritual life because I chose to live for God and his purposes and not my own purposes. So there's the big payoff. There's the big reward. Paul now sees fruit from his labor, spiritual fruit, lasting fruit, eternal fruit. And the only way that was, hap was able to happen is because he put himself aside. 
and was able, uh, willing to go through whatever was necessary in order to fulfill God's calling on his life. So in verse 13, he says, And since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what is written, I believe and therefore spoke. We also believe and therefore speak. So our words come from our belief. And our belief has caused the veil to be lifted, so we see God, and so now our ministry is one of sharing the things that we see. It's almost like if someone was blind and you'd be trying to describe to them the Grand Canyon or something. You would just just be explaining and trying to describe so they would get an understanding of what was going on. But see, if you're a believer, you see, and, and that is what God has called us to do is now to describe what we see, the things of the Spirit, the things that God has opened our eyes to, that, that that's what we do. We, we explain those things. We describe those things. In verse 14, he says, knowing that he who raised up the Lord Jesus will also raise us up with Jesus and will present us with you. For all things are for your sakes, that the grace having spread through many may cause thanksgiving to abound to the glory of God. So then he brings it back to the first point. Therefore, we don't lose heart. So this is why we keep going. Someone might say to the Paul, how do you do it? We, we just saw him describe all the different things that he has gone through. And someone may, might say, how do you do it? How do you keep persevering? How do you finish well? How do you not give up? And he's, he's going back to that. And watch this. He says, so therefore we don't lose heart. Even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. So that's how. He has an understanding of eternity. He has a perspective that this world is very short. And he realizes as his physical body is deteriorating, that his spiritual life is growing. And so he says, I don't give up. In other words, like if I gave up, what, what would happen? Maybe I'd get stronger physically. Maybe I'd be more comfortable physically. But as I'm going through this, I keep going. I don't give up because my inward man keeps growing. The things of the Spirit, they keep growing in my life. That's how we don't give up. Because as we push through, we discover that the things of the Spirit grow in our life. That's why we don't give up. Those become so amazing, the things of the Spirit, so valuable that we don't want to give up. Yeah, we get discouraged. We get our feelings hurt. We get frustrated. We go th but we don't give up because, man, our inward person is growing and maturing and developing and that's what's going to last forever.
That's what's going to last forever. We can be as comfortable as we want. We can focus on our life here in this world, but no matter what we do, it's still going to deteriorate. It's still going to fail. And at the very end, it's going to leave us hanging. So he says, my emphasis is on the things of the Spirit. My emphasis is on eternal things. And then he says in verse 17, he says, for our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Light affliction. I don't know anybody that would look at the things that Paul is going through, which eventually led to his death, his imprisonment and death for the gospel. He called it light. He thought this wasn't a big deal. That really puts in perspective the things that we may think are big deals. Paul saw all the things that he was going through as light afflictions. But here's how he, here's the secret. Here's how he did that. He compared what he was going through to something. So if he didn't compare, then it may seem like a very heavy affliction. The biggest affliction that you could ever imagine. But because he compared it to something... His affliction didn't seem like anything. So what did he compare it to? This light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. So that's what he was doing. He saw what he was going through as light and short in comparison to eternity. As he looked at eternity, as he looked at his life with Jesus that was going to go on forever, he was able to to look at his life and say, you know what, this isn't that bad. The worst someone could do to Paul was send him to where he wanted to go. Home, heaven. That's the worst, some, and they did that. And so Paul saw his life here correctly, and we have to ask ourselves the question, is our life in this world in the right perspective? Are we living our life and thinking about our life in light of eternal things? Would we do anything different? if we really got a glimpse of eternity and what heaven was like and had in perspective of really how short this life is compared to eternity, how do you think that would look on a timeline? Someone's whole life here on earth versus all eternity. How do you think that would look? It'd look ridiculous. And imagine seeing 
our life here on this earth in the right perspective on a timeline of eternity and then foregoing your eternity for this little speck on the timeline that is nothing. You'll have a lot of regrets. And Paul is saying, look, your life now is all leading somewhere, and that's eternity. We live our life now on this earth for eternity. We do that now, and, and we can't do that then. We can only do that now. Now is our only opportunity to live here on earth for eternity and to make those decisions of who and what we're going to live for, the purpose. And so in, in chapter 5, he continues with that, that thought and that idea. He says, For we know if our earthly house, this tent, if it is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. So he, he compares our bodies to a tent, temporary. Think about a, a tent in light of the mansion that God has in heaven for us. Don't make too much of the tent. The tent is this body that we live in. We use these tents to interact with the material world. Okay, that's why we have these bodies. These bodies are, are to be used to interact with the things of this world. But these tents, they're going to be destroyed one day. And as we get older, we get these little rips and tears in the tent. The tent sort of fades and loses its luster and its color, always reminding us of, of these eternal things that God is telling us about. In verse 2, he says, for in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. So believers groan for something more. And the, the older you get, the more you make weird groaning noises for no reason. This is very appropriate. Just groaning, making weird noises all the time because everything hurts. It's a reminder that the tent is wearing out. Verse 3, if needed, having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. He's talking about our new bodies that we're going to get in heaven. For we who are in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not because we want to be un clothed or rid of these bodies but further clothed that mortality may be swallowed up by this life speaking about these glorified bodies that we're going to get now he who has prepared us for this very thing is God who also has given us the spirit as a guarantee so the Holy Spirit is like a down payment to assure us that our place is reserved in heaven. So every believer in Christ has the Holy Spirit living inside of them. 
And here he's telling us that's the guarantee. The Holy Spirit in you is the guarantee that you'll be in heaven with God forever. So we have, or so we're always confident knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. So now we walk by faith and not by sight. We are confident, yes, well, please, rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Therefore, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are well known to God, and I also trust we are well known in your consciences. He's speaking about what's known as the Bema seat judgment. This is not the great white throne judgment. This is a, a judgment for believers only. And it tells us that every believer will stand in judgment for rewards. The Bema, Bema seat judgment would be where one would stand when they would compete in athletics to get a crown on their head, one of those like IV crowns on their heads. And so the Bible teaches that our judgment as believers, judgment has been taken away because Christ died in our place. So we, we don't stand in judgment for our sins, but what he's saying is what we do here in this world, it will determine much about our eternity. And as, as I was referring to before, we only have this life to do the things that God called us to do in this world. And, and what we do will resonate and go into eternity with us. So we'll, we'll all stand before Christ and it'll be this standing before him for rewards. Now who will be rewarded and what will be rewarded? The simplest way to look at it, and I would encourage you to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 3 tonight as well. It talks about works that go through this fire of judgment. And the works that are done out of obedience to God will go through the fire and on into eternity. Works that are done for the wrong motives or wrong, wrong reasons they won't pass through the fire, but the person will. So it's not a, a judgment of heaven or hell. It's a judgment of, are your works going to go into eternity with you as rewards? This is the same type of thing. So what, it, what will be rewarded is what we do in faith. Another way to look at that is, our faithfulness to God 
will bring about the eternal treasures in heaven. We don't manufacture the works or make the works. We obediently follow the Lord in faithfulness. And as we do that, we will be building treasures in heaven and not on earth. So it's faithfulness out of our sincere love for God that will be a work that will go on into eternity with us. So say, for example, we serve in a ministry here at church. And we're doing it because someone forced us to do it. And we don't want to do it. And we have a bad attitude about it. And we're complaining about it. And we're upset about it. That's a work that's not going to make it through. But a work that we do out of our sincere love for God and our, our desire to want to honor Him and glorify Him and please Him, when we do that, that is work that will be going on into heaven with us. And it doesn't have to be like a specific church ministry. It's just, a, it's just our whole life being lived to honor God and being faithful to God. It could be just responding to a prompt in our heart to pray for someone, to encourage someone. And when we respond to that, boom, we get that treasure in heaven. It's just having a, a heart that just is excited to serve God because our heart's been touched by the love of God and we just love to do anything for the Lord. That's the heart attitude that, that has rewards in heaven. God doesn't want us to, to do something out of compulsion or force or a bad attitude. But at the same time, hey, I think it would be appropriate to be zealous for good works. Because God has loved us so much and we're so blown away by God's love for us that we'll do anything for the Lord. If it means being a gum scraper in the parking lot, praise the Lord. Let me scrape that gum the best I can. Let me be the best gum scraper that's known to man. And if we do it for the Lord, it's in heaven we're going to have treasures built up. So verse 12. For we do not condemn ourselves again to you, or I'm sorry, commend ourselves to you. In other words, I don't want to keep saying my credentials over and over again. I'm not going to do that. But give you opportunity to boast on our behalf that you may have an answer for those who boast in appearance and not in heart. Do you see that? That's the whole point of what he's trying to say. And our church culture really needs to get a hold of that. It's the heart. It's not the outward appearance. And Paul is saying, I'm telling you all these things because those false prophets that are coming through and giving you a worldly idea of what success is and, and translating that into spiritual things, he's saying, that's wrong. He's saying, now what I just said, 
you can boast to those people and say the boast is that God is glorified through the weakness of Paul. That's the boast. God is glorified through the lowliness of Paul, not the elevation of Paul, not the pride of Paul, the boasting of Paul. That was Paul before. That's who he was before. He was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He was a high-ranking, educated man in Judaism. And he considered all of that a loss, but for the surpassing greatness of the knowledge of Jesus Christ. So he wasn't boasting in any of those things. He's telling them, hey, if you want to boast, look how faithful God has been to me despite how weak I am and unimpressive I am. That's what he wanted the Corinthians to boast in. Verse 13, he says, For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. Beside ourselves is this way to say, if we're crazy, as he's saying, like people are saying Paul's crazy. Well, if, if we are, if that's what people are saying, it's for God. Or if we are of sound mind, it's for you. For the love of Christ, there it is. You might want to circle that compels us so that's his motive if you read through the latter half of the book of acts and then you read through paul's letters the reason he did all of those things is because the love of christ was compelling him or motivating him or pushing him and that's that's the motive of service that god wants us to have when the love of Christ melts a person's heart, that person will be willing and zealous to do anything for the Lord and be so satisfied and grateful to do anything for the Lord. It's the love of Christ as the motive for serving the Lord. He says, because we judge thus that if one died for all, then all died. And if he died for all, that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. So that's it. So if that's true, then there has to be a response to that. If Jesus really did that, then the only logical conclusion that would follow is that one would live for his purposes and not our own purposes. Even as Christ was an example of put, lowering himself and putting his will down so that the Father's will will be executed. Verse 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ. So let's stop there. If anyone is in Christ. So you have to answer that question yourself. Are you in Christ? That's the question that we all need to answer. Every human needs to answer because that's really the only, the only answer that will suffice to bring someone into heaven. That is... Really, the, the question of all questions, are you in Christ or you're not? If you're in Christ, your sins are forgiven, your name's written in the Lamb's Book of Life, 
and you're living for His purposes as evidence. If you're not in Christ, then you're living for yourself. You're dead in your trespasses of sins and you're perishing and you're separated from God. And your eternity will be an eternity of separation from God. That's why Paul was willing to give his life on this earth for those things because it is so important. It's not just some fun little religious game. It's eternity. That's why he was willing to do what he did. This is the motivation that we all have. People are perishing and there there will be people that will spend eternity in hell forever. And that's why we cannot stay silent. We cannot disregard the importance of sharing the hope that lies within us because we're talking eternal things. And once a person enters into eternity, that's it. There's no do-overs. There's no middle place. There's no praying that person out of that place. Now is the time to decide our eternity. Now is it. Then is too late. Our eternity is settled in this life, not the next. That's why these things are so important. That's why every believer has what Paul is about to say. Because if you are in Christ, you've been rescued, you've been saved, you have eternal life. You're set for eternity if you're in Christ. So if anyone is in Christ, what actually happens? He tells us. You're a new creation. You're not the same. So God changes us from the inside. So to be in Christ means that we're not what we were. It means that it's not just some religious thing we add to the outside. It means as we surrender our life to Christ that we become new or transformed on the inside. So if any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. He says, old things, our old life of living for ourselves and living for our own desires, that's all passed away. Now, behold, all things have become new. Now all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself. So that's what happens when we become new creations in Christ. If we're in Christ, we've been reconciled. You know what that means? Just, it means you had a bad relationship. And then that relationship came together. Reconciled. It's a reconciliation of a relationship. How does that happen? Well, The Bible tells us that we're separated from God from birth. We're not good with God. We're bad with God. We're not in Christ. We're separated from God. We need to be brought together. Can we do anything to bring ourselves together with God and reconcile ourselves to God? No, we can't do anything about it. There has to be the shedding of blood for the forgiveness of sins. Can an animal shed the blood for us? No, it has to be a sinless 
person in our place, and that can only be one, God himself, who came in the flesh to take our place. So in Christ, that's how we get reconciled to the Father, because the blood of Christ has washed away our sins. It is our sin that causes the hostility of God towards us. Sin requires judgment. So it's our sin, and we're born in sin. Our nature is from the fall that we are born in Adam. We are born sinful, so we need to be born again. We need something to happen. We need to be born spiritually, and that happens through faith in Jesus Christ. Faith and faith alone. And when that happens, now we're reconciled with God. That means we're friends with God. We're on good terms with God. Why? The sin has been put away in Christ. So now without that barrier of separation of sin, now we can be friends with Christ. We're we're friends. We're good with him. We're good with the Father. He's reconciled us. In verse 19, that is God who is in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. So we're new creations, we're reconciled with God, we have new life in God, and now we have a new purpose in God when we're new creations of God, and the new purpose that we have is to use the word of God to bring other people into reconciliation with God. So that's the purpose of a new creation. The new creation now has this word and this responsibility. You see that? That's a responsibility. In verse 20, it says, Now then, we are ambassadors. If you're, in, if you're in Christ and a new creation in Christ, now we represent heaven to the world. That's what an ambassador does. We're ambassadors of Christ as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. So he's saying we've been given this new ministry and then he goes on and does the ministry he now says, be reconciled with God. So he's showing them, this is what you do. You, you plead with people. You show people, like my eyes have been open to see the things of God. And you can be reconciled to God too by putting your faith in Jesus Christ. You'll be a new creation. He'll fill you with the Holy Spirit. Your eyes will be open to spiritual things. And you will have the word of God given to you to give to other people. And this, this is, we'll just get to this last verse here, but this is what you can share with anybody. If you're not sure what to say to people or you, you think, I don't know how to do this or whatever, just take them to 2 Corinthians 5.21. This is what happened. This is how you become in Christ. For he, God the Father, made him, God the Son, Jesus, who knew 
no sin, Jesus was sinless, to be sin. Jesus took our sin. He actually on the cross became sin. He who knew no sin became sin. Who did he do that for? For us. That we might become the righteousness of God. So how do we become righteous? We put our faith in Jesus who took our place in judgment and in exchange for our sin, we give him our sin, he gives us his righteousness. That's a pretty good deal. And then as we make that in exchange, we become the righteousness of God and this says, in him, again, in Christ. And so that's the whole gospel. That's what motivated Paul. Christ died for me. As his eyes opened up to his own sinful nature, he would have been in shock when we see our true sin nature. It's shocking, but it should lead us to the understanding of the great grace and mercy of God who took our sin and took our place on the cross that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. And Paul is saying that's the message. If you're in Christ, that's what you do. There may be different ways to do it, and there are, but he's saying the love of Christ drives us to share Christ with people and the stakes could not be higher. The stakes are eternal. None of us here have any guarantees we are going to continue living in this world other than right this second. None of us know when we go home, on our way home, when we get there, we don't have any promises beyond right now. And that's why it's so important to settle the issue of eternal life right now because we don't know what we have after right now. And eternity is so unlike things that we know in this world. In our lives, there's so many do-overs. You can mess your whole life up for 30 years and all of a sudden you can turn it around and get your life back on track. You can do that for 40 years, 50 years, maybe not 60, but... There's do-overs, but not in this one thing. Okay? Eternity is eternity. When we live the, leave this life, there's no other chance. This is the chance. Today is the day of your salvation. So make that decision. If you've never made it, make it clear and become a new creation in Christ and have your eternity set, your name written in the Lamb's book of life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this night and your word. We thank you for this truth that sets us free. I pray a blessing on those who have come today and those who are listening. I pray that you would bless them and keep them and watch over them and be gracious to them and make your face shine upon them. Lord, we love you and praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, God bless you guys. And um, Lord willing, we'll see you on Sunday.